When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast. What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second week in our series talking about acquisitions and finding the right practice for for you in creating your lifestyle practice. Again, myself, Derek, and Steve here. What's going on, Steve? Round two. I'm ready. I'm here ready, Derek. How have you been doing? Are you Are you back in the saddle again with dentistry? Back in the saddle again. Yeah, it's been it's been about a month now and I mean there's definitely been new things to work through, but our production has been pretty high. Our numbers have been looking good and part of that is probably just a little bit of pent-up demand. I don't know about you, but I've never had so many people come in and say I am so excited to finally go somewhere and to talk to people. I've never been so happy to go to the dentist. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being open. Oh, well, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so overall, it's been it's been good. Like I said, some new challenges, and I'm interested to see what happens through the remainder of the year. But for now, we are making the hay while the sun shines. Nice. Well yeah. said. Yeah. What about you? How have things been for you so far? Yeah, it's pretty normal, maybe a little even even more busy. Our area in the South here, we haven't really been affected by COVID like things I've read about in the news and other areas. So I think we're fortunate and we haven't really had any issue with patients. I mean, one guy came in and he like wrapped himself in bubble wrap, but other than him. (laughs) Was um, he being serious or was (laughs) it a joke? Not like, not like plastic bubble wrap, but he was was like all these like (laughs) scarves and everything over his head. And he was like, (laughs) he was like, like taking his temperature, like wasn't enough for him. (laughs) So we he was a pretty weird dude, but things are back back to normal, I would say. We haven't really missed a step, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I was literally picturing someone completely wrapped in bubble wrap and then having to cut a little slit to have access <laughs> to their mouth. No, like he, he just like looked at me so suspiciously as I put on gloves and I had my, you know, we had our extra masks on and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're out there. He should yeah. be on What About Bob, I guess, but... <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into our questions. We've been going through a list of frequently asked questions that we get in relation to where to look at practices, type of situations, all of that kind of stuff. So let's continue on with our questions. And the next question is looking at insurance involvement. The question, you know, is fee-for-service always better than PPO? Should I consider Medicaid offices This is a great question, and I think it's a good one to consider. Again, there's not a right or wrong here, but there's different pros and cons. The practice that I purchased was fee-for-service, so I'll talk a little bit about that, and then, Steve, I'll let you talk a little bit about your experience with Medicaid offices. When I was doing my research and looking in different areas, I was really looking for ways to grow and expand a current office. I saw those as areas of potential. And when we get into evaluations later on, we're going to look much more heavily at all of these different areas. But when I compare insurance involvement, I look at it 
in the same way. If a practice is fee-for-service, you could always go in-network with some of the highest reimbursing insurance companies if you wanted to try and grow. If the practice is already high in PPOs, you could look at others to increase or look at renegotiating. But if the practice is already heavy Medicaid, you have less room for growth in this specific area as far as insurance efforts. So all other things being equal, I would rather have the fee-for-service office. Now, Steve, you and I have talked a lot about the difference between our two situations, and this is one that comes up often in conversation. What I think is really cool about it is that you and I have both been pretty equally successful as far as profit and growth that we've experienced in our practices. But maybe one difference would be that you have had a bigger hurdle as far as reimbursements on your procedures. So you've had to do more dentistry to make the same amount of production or profit that I would. Do you think that that's safe to say or or do you see it a little bit differently? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you have to do a lot more volume for it. I mean, your denture, right? You get a denture case and it's like 5K or something, right? It was our last yeah. joke we talked yeah. about. Yeah, it's 2,500 per arch. So that's, that's not bad. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what you want, right? Basically, I think this question is location dependent. If the five practices closest around you are all out of network, then you are in a golden spot. If, on the other hand, every single dentist in your area is signed up with Dentamax and other dirt cheap plans, it's going to take a lot of work to market and build goodwill to the point where you can establish a fee-for-service practice of any real size to it. So if you're not limited by location and you're looking to acquire, you're able to move to the best opportunity, even rural, then you bet you should go out and find a practice with the absolute highest reimbursements. If your family or your location preferences are limiting the geographic area that you can look for practice in, assuming that your area is heavily PPO, then this may be a reality for you. You mentioned Medicaid. As far as Medicaid, I would definitely recommend to look at other practice options first. My practice, when I purchased it, it was about 33%, mostly PPO, but some Medicaid insurance and a little fee-for-service. But one thing to keep in mind here is if you decide to do become a Medicaid office or, or buy one, it varies greatly by state. And, you know, one state, the Medicaid reimbursements are around PPO fee levels. And in these states, you could actually have some real opportunity. Other states, it's like penny dentistry, which I would just advise to steer clear from in all circumstances, really. One thing I will say about Medicaid offices is you can get into the game really cheap and make money really fast, meaning you can probably buy a practice that's very inexpensive. And as long as you can do volume and lead a team, you can almost instantly have a large patient pool and a steady cash flow. You know, I have a client right now and he's just, he's crushing it. He has a, a Medicaid practice. I think he's even in a state with pretty low fees, but he utilizes his assistance a lot. He works really hard and he's actually crushing it. He just bought it a couple months ago too. So I guess we would probably recommend that if you're looking for a practice, this is going to be your job 
you're going to be married to this for years and years. So definitely you need to be choosing a higher fee, less insurance dependent practice if you're able to. This should be something that ranks on the top of your list when you're evaluating practices. But that being said, there are different models of practices and and different types of dentistry out there. And you can, if you approach them properly, make all of them very profitable. Yeah, great points. I think it's interesting to hear your perspective as you've experienced that and gone through it. So that's what I love about this whole game. And really, it is a game to me. It's a game of life. I just see life as there's opportunity everywhere around us. And you can choose any direction to go and to find opportunity. So it's not about one way or the other, but it's about choosing the direction you want to go, understanding the challenges that are ahead of you and moving forward. And I think you're a great example of that. I think there's a lot of people that would just not even consider looking at some of the practices that you did, but you walked into it, you knew the challenges and really have been incredible as far as what you've been able to get out of your practice. Thank you. Yeah, it's true though. There's just so many different opportunities. Like lots of dentists, they'll be crown and bridge guys and they'll never ever, they're not too high for doing a denture, but they would never touch a denture. And then you have these other guys that you, you know, we know a couple of them, they build their practices on just like denture practices and they just knock it out of the park. And you could look at each niche of dentistry procedure wise, or even fee wise or location, and you can make it work in any area. As long as you go into it, like you kind of mentioned last week with eyes wide open, know what you're getting into, know what you're going to do and just kind of capitalize on it. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. Okay. The next question that I want to get into is the question of When you're looking at different practices, you're going to see different opportunities. You're going to see, and you can kind of categorize them into two categories. Obviously, there's going to be some in the middle, but what we're talking about here is looking at value add practices versus a high performing practice. So a value add practice is is one where basically that the, the practice is underperforming for whatever reason versus a high performing practice that things are going pretty well and there's maybe less low hanging fruit as far as being able to go in and change things and get to the next level. So the questions that I think you need to ask yourself in this situation is when you purchase a practice, are you okay with putting in the time and effort to take things to the next level? Or would you rather pay for a practice that is already performing at the level that you would be happy with? And then just go in with kind of the mindset of, maintaining things and keep the ball rolling. I think all three of us, you, Justin, and I have purchased value add practices. What I mean by that is that all of the practices that we have purchased have been value add practices. And I'm a little more on this side of the fence. And here's my reasoning. When you purchase a practice, no matter the practice, you're going to become the business owner. At that point, you have to step up your leadership you need to hold meetings, you need to train your team, etc. There's a lot to do. And I think that either way, you're going to need to do this, whether you purchase a value add practice or a high performing practice. When I think of my time at the office, I consider an hour at the office, an hour at the office. 
what I mean by that is if I'm going to go to the office, I want to get the most out of it. I want to be busy working hard, improving things, growing value, etc. So in both of these scenarios, I'm going to be at the office anyway. So I might as well be using that time to really push things and improve and grow. Others might look at that and say, well, Derek, if, if you purchase the lower end practice, you might have more holes in the schedule and be sitting on your hands more. How is that going to give you a better return on your time? My answer is this. I know that wherever I go, I will be able to grow a practice. I've had so many days where we end up with something going wrong And I start out the day with like 3,000 on the books. But time and time again, I push myself every minute of the day and end up with over 10,000 for the day. I'm not saying this to brag. You know, we just did a couple episodes dedicated to sharing with everyone how we do that day after day. So I truly believe that anyone could get to that point if they're willing to put in the effort. So my point here is this, why would I pay for a million dollar office if I knew that I could squeeze the same amount of juice out of a $500,000 practice? Apples to apples though, all other things being equal, you need to do your homework and make sure that there is potential there. On the other hand, you might purchase a million dollar office and take it to 1.5 quickly by applying the same principles. Yeah. Yeah, great points. Most consultants or CPAs, when you ask them, they'll tell you the most important factor in acquiring a practice is just the cash flow. And you can't really argue with that. I mean, it's the safest tried and true route. Buying a dental practice is not a cheap thing. So if you're if you're buying an established cash flowing practice, you're minimizing your risk in a really big way. Yeah, interesting that you you say that. But In my acquisition, I remember talking to the bank that I was getting financing through and they looked through everything. And after that, they said, okay, you feel okay about this deal? They said, you know, I mean, it's okay, but it's, it's nothing great. And I was kind of surprised by this because I saw so much potential in it. I felt like it was a great deal, but they were looking at it exactly in in the way that you're talking about strictly by the cash flow. And if you look at it with only those eyes, Yes, that's true. There's nothing really special about it, but it's because I saw it for more than that. Yeah, yeah. And they advise lots of dentists that weren't prepared with skills and tools that you had. So that's kind of their perspective. If you buy a value add practice, which like you said, is just an underperforming practice, you could be buying a practice with problems. That's why it's underperforming, right? Something is wrong there and there's something going on. So if you want to take this on as an entrepreneurial doctor, you need to understand what that problem is. Is this practice small because they have zero marketing and there's poor systems in the office? Maybe the doctor is just a terrible communicator or maybe he's a lazy doctor. Or is it because this is a really bad or competitive demographic? Or does the practice have visibility? You know, you can't talk yourself into loving this practice and overlooking some other problems that can't really be fixed. You know, some of those problems can be fixed. The latter ones, location, that's a problem you can't change. So, you know, despite all this, you and I, we ended up doing value add type acquisitions and, you know, Justin did two twice. And, you know, you could say this path is aggressive and risky, but only paying a couple hundred thousand dollars for a practice that you're confident you can 
churn out some big numbers is really good because you get the cash flow and instead of going into heavy debt, you are now building a nice little equity egg within your practice that you'll be able to to have, you know, in a few years when you sell. Yeah, great points. And I think part of what you're talking about here is that you have to recognize the challenges, which of these items are going to be challenging. And there's certain challenges that are going to be very difficult to overcome. And that's the type of situation where you're talking about that it's an underperforming practice for a reason, and you may not be able to go in and change it. But if you know the right ones, there can be opportunities that are much easier to change, therefore making it much more likely for you to be able to go in and change that. So in the next episode, I think we're going to get to reviewing each of those items and which of them are easy to change, which of them are not, so that you really kind of know which ones are basically rule out certain practices that you shouldn't be looking at these anymore versus when you should still be open to looking at that practice. But I think that there is probably another reason that you and I both ended up with these types of practices. And that is maybe not true for you. But for me, part of it was financing. Being brand new out of school, it was tough to get access to a ton of capital for higher performing practices coming right out of school. My practice, I paid 400000 for the practice, and that included accounts receivable. So Woo, now look at it. it is a different practice now completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's completely different now, but that was a, a good chunk of debt. But I also didn't have to pay a million dollars for that high performing practice. So anyway, I think I maybe just emphasize the other point you made is in a way it's more the doctor than it is the practice. And this can be confusing for first-time buyers that have never owned a practice before. Like, how do you know, am I going to be a great owner? How am I going to perform? But it really is, you could plug Derek or Justin, you guys could go to any practice that's underperforming and you could probably turn it around great. And, you know, this is one reason why I laugh at financial pro formas that CPA sometimes will give you of the dental practices where they'll look at what the old doctor has done the last couple of years, and then they'll project how much you can expect to make it when you acquire this practice. And in my mind, these these really mean very little. Your profit when you buy a practice, it could be anywhere from negative to absolutely sky high, really just depending on the doctor. So when you get those pro formas on the back of a prospectus or something, I would not put a lot of weight into those personally. It's like saying, you know, a small forward entering the NBA can be expected to make this much when in reality that number can change a lot, whether that small forward is like LeBron James or Derek Williams or so it varies a lot. But I would say if you're putting a, a stellar doctor in an underperforming practice, you can still get a great result. And if you have a dentist that has poor leadership skills and drive buying a really big productive practice, you could see it be pulled back as well. Yeah. You were comparing me to LeBron because you knew I'd kick his trash, right? Yes, yes. That's yeah, exactly okay. why. Yeah. LeBron, if you're out there listening to this right now, challenge you to one-on-one anytime in Lufkin. Yeah. <laughs> Derek's going to give him his old little uh, one-two, two-step with a little right-hand hook. That's your specialty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great, great points. Let's move on to the next question. The next question is, where do I start? Where do I look to find practices? 
practices by and large are sold by brokers and brokers are the ones advertising these practices. Some of the most common places that you will see ads for practices that are for sale are state dental associations. So they have monthly publications where there's going to be stuff in there. They pretty much all have websites and they're going to have a classified section on there with all of their practice listings. Dental Town classifieds, there's a lot of practices on there. You can look at dental groups and people there. Sellers like to sell to buyers that are similar to them if they get the chance. So if there's some kind of Facebook group for dentists that are a specific race or religion or area or anything like that, that can be a good place to look as well. You can also just Google, just search for dental practices for sale and then search for the area that you're looking. And you're very likely going to find different groups that help to sell practices. So as you reach, start reaching out and start finding some of these different advertisements and getting in touch, like I said, brokers are the ones representing them. So it's likely going to be brokers that you meet and talk to. And over time, if you kind of localize to a specific area, you're going to get to know some of those specific brokers or firms that represent many dentists in those areas. At that point, you will start to get a feel for different brokers and maybe you'll have a preference for who you would like to work with, who you like. It doesn't matter a ton, but in general, I think buyers tend to work with people that make them feel more comfortable. So after time, you will probably find yourself talking more with the brokers or looking at their websites directly for the practices that they are listing rather than searching through the raw listings in the other places that I found. It's probably a good idea to do both, but that's just what I have seen from personal experience. Another avenue would be looking at finding off-market deals. And Steve, I know that you have a little bit of experience here. Could you kind of explain what this means and how it's generally done? Oh, well, I certainly will. (laughs) Why, thank you. (laughs) Off-market deals is just that. Practices that are for sale, but they're not advertised anywhere. And in some instances, older doctors may not know yet that they want to sell their practices. And then they're suddenly open to it when the opportunity arises. And these, you know, you can uncover some really good options that aren't immediately gobbled up by private equity or become tied up under a brokerage firm. So there's a couple of ways to look for these. One really easy and obvious is to go through the grapevine of your professional network. I think supply reps and equipment service technicians are a really good resource here. Many of these people, they know the ins and outs of every practice in your area, and they have had relationships with other dentists for years and years. So they're a very valuable source. I'd recommend just reach out to them and ask if they know of any dentists that may be thinking about selling their practice or may have interest in that. And they could probably give you a few. When I, when I first acquired my practice, I thought I was going to open you know, multiple locations at the time. So I reached out to my equipment repair guy and he immediately knew of two practices that had dentists who wanted to sell, but were not advertising anywhere. So you can go through just, you know, the local, the local network. Another clever way that I really like, especially if you're like a dental student or a resident is to reach out to older dentists and ask if you can take them to lunch and interview them for 
a school project or just to pick their brains and ask for some advice as a young dentist. Then you meet up with them and you kind of build a relationship and then just ask if they would be interested in selling their practice to you. I spoke with one dentist who did this with a lot of older docs when he was in school. You know, he would ask some clinical and professional advice and then he asked what their ideal exit plan would look like. And he followed up that question with just saying, would you be interested if, if I bought your practice? And he said, the majority of dentists he spoke to said yes, right then at the end of that conversation. So, you know, there's that relationship building and networking that way directly. Steve, was that Dennis Brady Frank? Yeah, but I talked to him because he was trying to sell me on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that's funny because we both talked to him. I, I remember I talked to him on the phone one day at school in the clinic and it was on his lunch break. And I was asking him specifically about this process, too. So <laughs> that's funny. That's, yeah, I ended up doing that with some dentists in the Omaha area in dental school and tried out that method and strategy. And it did work, but I did not find a practice that I felt was good enough that I, that I wanted to buy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you saying that. I remember you met with a couple of dentists there and that's okay because I think a big part of this process is just learning all the ins and outs of evaluating practices. The more people you can talk to, the more dentists will share with you kind of the less fuzzy your picture of what you want your practice to be like becomes. And so a lot of this is just, and we'll talk about this next time, but learning and, and doing reps and going through practices and talking with more and more people. So, and you're, you're going to go through tons of practices before you find the one you buy. So it's a process and you can learn it just like everything else. But the last one I was going to say is just letters. For example, when I was looking to acquire practice, I looked up the dentist's license numbers and birth dates in the state dental board's directory where I wanted to practice. And I just looked at everyone that was older than 50, got their address, and I, or if they didn't have their address on there, I'd look up their practice addresses on Google. And I would just put together a letter. Basically, I introduced myself and I expressed my goal to join the local dental community and buy a practice. I threw a picture of me and my family in there and I just sent it to all these dentists on this list that I created. And, you know, less than a month later, I got probably five or six different offers, all of which, by the way, were off market. No one was wow. listing their, yeah. And two of them, I think were actually really, really good. So this can be a really valuable thing to do. It's a little busy work, but it's a great way to find off market opportunities and it'll lead to a lot of networking as well. I, I was impressed to see other dentists who didn't want to sell, they just like, they wrote me a letter back to say welcome to the area or that they would pass along any information that they heard about in the future. So those are some ways that I've had success. And I think they're, they're pretty helpful. If I remember right, well, cause I was thinking as you, as you said that five or six offers out of 50, is that how many you sent out was 50? Well, I did it in two areas. So probably like 75 or so. 75 letters. Yeah, it was, it that's was a, good. That's yeah. a pretty good success rate. I mean, that's like almost one out of 10. Yeah. I'm shooting 10% here. Yeah. But I'm just curious. I can't remember if, if the timing was, was an issue or did you end up finding your other practice before you found out about some of those or what ended up happening if, you know, you said some of those were pretty good practices? 
Yeah, it was all kind of concurrent. Things were happening at the same time. I was doing kind of the things you described, looking at like just scouring the classified listings at the same time as sending out letters. And my practice that I ended up buying, it just seemed to be a better opportunity than these off-market ones. So, But it was all kind of happening at the same time. You were a big networker at that time, but did you try this letter idea? Well, I, I started to. I Kind of similar to you. I mean, I had been looking in a lot of different areas and had looked at a lot of different opportunities. I found an area that seemed like there was a lot of opportunity. I was seeing really good financials from practices, but they were also selling quickly and I didn't have I didn't have financing and everything lined up well enough to be a competitive buyer. And so that was my way around it. I was thinking, okay, if I can if I can approach this from a different way and find something that is that is off market, that could help me find a good practice that's out there while not having the same leverage that other buyers might have, like just more work history experience and and access to financing. So yeah, I had a list of addresses and I had printed off the letters and uh, envelopes and everything, but I actually ended up finding my practice that I ended up purchasing while in the middle of all that. So I didn't end up sending them out. So if you guys want to send out Derek's letters, he still has them. (laughs) <laughs> and you can just put your name on there. <laughs> I have posted it in the past. Maybe I'll go back and find that and post it on the on the Facebook page. I mean, it's not, I mean, like you you described yours, mine was fairly similar picture and, you know, just explaining who I was and what opportunity I was looking for and just ask, reach out to me if you think there's any chance we could make this work. Yeah. I bet a lot of dentists, they like get these letters from, they're like, oh, what a gunner. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Who is this kid? But it really does open doors in in my experience. Yeah. Okay. We're out of time for this episode. Next week, we are going to talk about building your team of professionals. Who should you get on board and, and when in the timeline? Talk about a little bit about the letter of intent and that process. And if we have time in that episode, we'll get to talking about looking through the appraisals of different offices. So hope that you guys are enjoying this. If you have any questions that you want us to address, feel free to post them on our Facebook page and we will make sure to include them. So everybody have a great week. We will see you next time. Later.